connected through the NSA. Complete transmission through the NSA. Suspending your rights for the duration of the permanent war. Hello, this is Chaos Radio, the international edition, edition number eight we are at now. And uh, yeah, it's time for another interview, another um, in-depth look into how people deal with computers. And it's going to be a, a look into history as well. With me is uh, Whitfield Diffie. And uh, we are going to talk a bit about cryptography and other things. My name is Tim Pritlow. Okay, here we are again. Um, welcome to Chaos Radio, and I say um, welcome to to Whitfield. Hello. Good, you're with me here. Uh, we just met here, more or less accidentally, at uh, in in Prague at a security uh, conference. You have been um, giving a talk here. What was the talk about? Um, it was a review of the century-long history of information security, uh, which I really think begins with the. Uh, basically begins with radio, which bypassed all the security measures that were known at that time for transmitting information, leaving only cryptography, which became the focus of 20th century information security for at least two-thirds of itself, and maybe more. So you, you, you consider radio as a communication um, system to be the beginning of of cryptography? Yeah, I think, well, cryptography, curiously, goes back to about the 1500s. The techniques, the and you could, you could, it's only a little bit of a stretch to say that the techniques in uh, Rheindahl uh, are elaborations of uh, things that were discovered in Italy in 1504 or something like that. Um, but I was saying that information security, this, the field we know today, 
goes back to the introduction of radio, and that it's had three, faced three major problems, and that the first was radio communication, and that the second was shared computers, and that the third is going to be uh, web, web services, and the need to hand your data out to other people for processing uh, in order to be competitive. So, um, well, so if we are looking back in, into history, your, your work has been part, part of the overall internet history as well, as you have been introducing a paper called New Directions in Cryptography together with uh, Martin Hellman back then. And it sort of laid, laid the uh, foundation for modern public key cryptography. So am I yes. summarizing this yes. uh, right? Um, but uh, you also said that um, somebody named uh, Ralph Merkle also played a role in, in, in overall. Well, Ralph Merkle, Ralph Merkle um, worked on this problem entirely independently of us. Um, and he he tells me the first things he did were in the fall of 1974. Um, the first I did, uh, the first breakthrough I made in this problem was in the spring of 1975. Um, so, so what? So what was this 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 paper exactly about? I mean, is there any well any easy way to to describe this this mechanism that was uh, then known as well since then known as the Diffie Hellman key exchange. So the Diffie-Hellman key exchange itself, incidentally, is within a week of 30 years old today. And um, it was one of the last things to go into the uh, New Directions paper, which was sent off about the 4th of June um, to the editors. Uh, I was leaving to go to the National Computer Conference to present a slightly earlier paper that we had written, and we included it in that presentation, uh, which was given around the 8th of June, something like that. Um, the paper was really about two topics, uh, the reason it was called Directions. Um, one, which has been less successful, so I'll start with it, is giving formal mathematical proofs of the security of cryptographic systems. We had a one of many flashes of optimism in history that that was going to be possible. Uh, it has given rise to a large theory community, people who work on uh, questions of what can be proven, but so far it's had uh, little practical uh, mm -hmm. impact. Uh, the, other, the other issue we considered was the issue is now seen as an issue of key management. We didn't quite see it so clearly at the time, that the classical paradigm of cryptography was that you have two people and you share some secret to start with because you sent it in the mail or met in person or had it shipped to you by the ComSec materials control system or something of that sort. And then you amplify the security of that secret to be the security of gigabits of traffic. Right? So you encrypt things using that secret and the other person can decrypt them. And this works reasonably well for something like a military organization that's very tightly integrated. But we recognize that it wouldn't work very well for sort of diverse commercial environment like now what's now called internet commerce 
because the interests of the people are too different. They can't recognize any single agent as having the authority to manufacture all the keys. And we came up with two distinct notions. Uh, more exactly, we came up with one and Ralph Merkel came up with one, and then we produced a solution to the one Ralph Merkel came up with. And eventually, Ravesh Shamir and Edelman produced a, a solution to the, to the one I had come up with. And the, the two models, uh, one is that you have two separate keys. And they're both keys, you encrypt and decrypt things with them. But they function asymmetrically because if you know one key, you can figure out the other one. But it's not true the other way around. This one key we call the public key. And if you know that, you can't figure out the secret key. And that means that if I know your public key, I can encrypt something with it and send it to you. And if you're the only person who knows your secret key, you're the only one who can decrypt it. The other technique is a little like perfect bridge bidding or something like that. It says the two of us can sit here in public and all of the observers are hanging on our every word and listening to everything we say and we negotiate for a while. At the end of the negotiation we know something secret that we didn't know at the beginning and you and I are the only people who know it even though everybody was listening to all of the exchange. And so that's, that's the protocol that's called Diffie-Hellman. Um, the two things there are some things that um, that the public key formulation, the RSA sort of encrypt and decrypt formulation does does better. Um, it gives really a very natural sort of signature. We didn't immediately know how to do a signature with the Diffie-Hellman approach, but Teher El-Gamal solved that problem about three years later. Um, what produced called El-Gamal signatures, but um, later NSA did a great deal of work to uh, engineer around his patent and uh, that is what's essentially that technique is now what's in the uh, digital signature standard uh, of the US. Um, so w w where did you make this, um, this in well how would you call it, would you call it an invention or was it just like the, the end of a path? Of I a always think I w the, the, um, the business people want to call it invention for obvious reasons but the patents have all expired now. So um, I always thought of it as discovery because I started out in mathematics. In mathematics, you think of yourself as discovering things, not inventing things. Mm -hmm. I think, in fact, it works very much like invention. I, I, have, I find it easier to talk about RSA in this respect that having come very close to discovering RSA and uh, knowing that Don Knuth and Marty Hellman also came close to it in different ways, uh, it seems to me that it's clear that there is the kind of, you know, working toward a particular objective that's similar, you know, to in, in what's called inventing the airplane wing or something of that kind. Mm -hmm. So um, I think either description is reasonable, but I always think of it as the discovery of public key cryptography, just the way you see mathematics in a platonic view as being out there in the world and you look around and you find it. So sometimes there will be a day when it will be discovered. So it's yeah. more like finding America than like finding something. But you know, we're, uh, I have, we're sitting here in Prague and it's here that Albert Einstein worked on the Prague theory of gravitation, which had uh, boundary value problems that he couldn't solve. And so he got rid of them by folding up the universe so it had no boundary. And that's why we have general relativity the way it is today. So I have another view that, you know, God makes it up as the physicists go along. 
maybe God makes it up as the mathematicians go along too. I don't know for sure. Ah, okay. So just because they are researching, they can they find <laughs> they find the solution that wouldn't be otherwise there. Interesting. So well, I've the great I've the, the 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 ultimate referee, right? Considers the papers and decides one. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I find this interesting because if, if we're talking about patents in, in, in general and, and, and sort of like the, the privatization of ideas, there are so many things that, well, sometimes it's really, I would say, okay, this is an invention. This is something that probably nobody really needed and it can be used for some things, but other things are sort of so obvious. And when finally somebody really bumps into that solution, it sort of claims this idea for him and takes it away from from the rest of the world maybe sometimes even barring the um further development of this area what's your relationship to well patent? you had a patent on this then yes okay um i have mixed feelings um the good thing about patents is they don't last forever right i mean maybe 17 or 20 years is too long but it isn't like this copyright nonsense of you know could run to years. A, a beyond the life of the author not beyond the issue of the work so it could easily be 125 years say right um the good thing about copyright in my view is that there is some sort of moral framework there if you acknowledge if i wrote something you make use of it the notion that I have some reasonable say over what you do is plausible to me. Patents seem to me to lack any similar basis in equity because it's a little sort of a set of game rules, right? I mean, we were both working very hard toward the same goal. We both did good work, and I finished two days before you did. So now I have all the rights to it, right? And, and, and nobody else has any. Um, on the other hand, I think most of the complaint about patents would be solved um, if if the obviousness requirements were tightened up some. So, I, you know, I, I believe, and I gave the example of RSA because it isn't my own invention, but it's something I worked very hard on. That seems to me you can say that's real invention. Um, you know, we now find this one other person who, who at least who knew this, but it clearly wasn't easy to discover the mathematics that underlies it had been around um, the, probably a century or so to the last piece of it, but the characteristic piece is two, three centuries old. And nonetheless, nobody had seen how to apply this to the cryptographic problem before. So I don't have any problem with that if you want to say that's an invention and that it was entitled to intellectual property protection. You know, but people are fond of complaining uh, about the uh, the patent probably expired now, but on the adjusting the visibility of your screen on the laptop by tilting the top, uh, or the background refresh patent, or various um, various other things. And I had thought, I had thought that these were all an artifact of it of the change in U.S. policy to allow software patents about. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, and that it was just that the patent office was good at searching its own databases, but not very good at searching other databases. And so when it began to accept software patents, since it had no databases of its own, everything you know seemed novel to it, and it just granted all, had no judgment, granted all sorts of patents. 
I haven't followed it carefully. I hear continuing complaint, and time ought to have solved that problem. So maybe, um, maybe there are deeper causes. If you look at it in a functional way, it seems to me the thing so disturbing about software patents is that there really is no mechanism for auditing a piece of software to discover if it infringes patents. So working entirely a good, in goodwill and entirely in isolation, a programmer sits down to write a program and find some solution to a problem, has never consulted the literature, right? Would perhaps that would be a much larger problem than writing the program. Yeah. Right? And then incorporates the program, you know, into something else that's marketed perhaps, and is then potentially vulnerable to a set of damages that are sort of on the theory that you should have known, you know, that you were putting somebody else's invention into this thing. And uh, that 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 seems to me just you know something could constipate the whole process of programming. Uh, fortunately, the impact seems to me not to have been as bad as I was worried it would be when I began. Maybe, know, maybe it's just starting. Maybe, maybe well, that could be. That could be. Because uh, more and more software patents are being issued, and in the end, it's it's just like trading between the powerful because uh, yes. if you are not able to offer anything um, then you, c you can't get anything in return so the ones who are actually losing are people who are doing it in the open source domain and have no big company uh, and no portfolio of other patents that, could that they could trade in. Right, so there are two issues there. One of course is if you do it in open source you make it vastly easier for somebody to go through and look for things on which there might be patents. You create a not terribly socially useful business for patent brandishers. Um, and, you know, I don't know how far this has gone. I could imagine people who uh, who write programs explicitly to go around the web looking at open source code and maybe looking for patterns that somehow identify uh, particular kinds of algorithms. I don't know how successful that's been. Surely somebody has tried it or will try it. Yeah, I, I, I heard that's also one of the problems behind um, video card manufacturers not to release the, the drivers they provide for certain operating systems like for, for the Mac and so on so the whole operating system can't be delivered in source uh, in total just because they are just well do not want the the software to to leak out also because they are just fearing that somebody might look into it and and find a, um, patents being offended in that area so do you think that in, in, in general the, the patent system has been good for scientists or is it getting worse? Well, I mean, I think scientists are probably the wrong question. I mean, uh, I th is ha you have to ask the question, has it been good for society overall? Yes. And I don't have a, I don't have a, a strong opinion on this. I'm generally speaking in favor of you know, narrow, narrow constructions in these things, shorter periods of validity, um, uh, more imposition of a, you know, more consideration that many things are obvious and should be dismissed. I think I have only one, I believe, creative idea in this direction, which is that we ought to go back to a first-to-invent system, ought to go to a first-to-invent system. We change back and forth in the U.S. between first-to-invent and first-to-file. I don't even know what it is at the moment. But we should go to first-to-invent so that you are required to declare when you invented it. 
but we should run the patent from the moment of invention, not from the moment of filing or granting. So now you want to cite an early date so that you'll have priority if somebody else comes along, but you want to cite a late date so that you'll, your patent will run for a long time. So you have a, a proper conflict that encourages you to declare an honest date because you can't do much better mm -hmm. with your game uh, approach. And uh, so that's the only constructive, I think, of all the things I've thought about patents, that's the only one that seems to me a novel idea. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, there is one more, something, uh, which is just that in many ways, I think that you should interpret, if, if a thing is invented several times, that should be regarded as evidence that it may have been obvious. It might not establish that fact, but it ought to suggest it. And I do not know enough about patent litigation to know whether that could practically be worked into the, hmm. the practices. Isn't it that the, the British military is said to have worked on the same material that you did? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the person who's most like me in their side of it is a man named James Ellis, who died in 1997. And unfortunately, they didn't let Ellis publish either his original paper or his history of it. Um, I mean, they, didn't pu they published it all right after he died. Mm -hmm. um, and so I talked to him about it quite a number of times, but I never actually had his documents in front of me when I was able to talk to him. So I can't, it's a little hard to know what he was thinking. His paper clearly contains the idea of public key cryptography, no question about that. He called it non-secret encryption. Um, and he had it in the complementary keys form. But the, the paper contains a, a proof of non-impossibility, or an alleged proof of non-impossibility, which I find absolutely incomprehensible. It seems to be, it was, <laughs> yeah, the phrase voodoo economics was for this one. <laughs> when costs are inconvenient, he doesn't count them. When they aren't inconvenient, he does count them. It, it um, I, I couldn't figure this out. But uh, there's also, I think, very little question. He then told this idea to Clifford Cox. Well, he didn't directly. I think uh, Malcolm Williamson told it to Clifford Cox who had been hired and didn't have a clearance yet, so he couldn't work on real, real, you know, really stuff that was more than, this stuff was probably secret, the papers were probably secret, but they, they weren't really secret in intelligence terms. And so Williamson told Cox this problem, and here's what impresses me. I was impressed with RSNA, who solved this problem in about three months after they read our paper, which is all together about 11 months 30, will be 30 years, about 11 months from now. Um, but uh, Clifford Cox solved it in six hours <laughs> and produced a system uh, they call C-cubed after his initials, which is uh, not quite as clean as RSA, but substantively equivalent. And then Malcolm Williamson subsequently produced uh, the same system as Diffie-Hellman, and he wrote his internal memo about two months after uh, our presentation to the National Computer Conference. So um, that one we seem to have beaten them. I'm, I'm happy enough to you know, accept that writing secret internal memos is to be counted as publication in their world. But um, he says he knew it earlier. <laughs> but that's the way scientific credit goes. You didn't get around to writing it up till later. Um, you're at some, some disadvantage. But what I find remarkable about this is that the 
three of them and the six of us, right, did, I found two things remarkable. One is the similarity of the work, given the, it's very hard in the modern world to find um, scientists or engineers who are separated so that they don't have influence on each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, and this is an essentially unique case in which we have two groups working independently, and they come up with remarkably similar results. Um, if the results they came up with w that we didn't, they haven't published them. Merkel's knapsack system was was novel to all of that community. Um, it doesn't, in the end, work terribly well. You have to twist it. You know, you have, apparently have to bend over backwards to make them secure, uh, and they're much less operationally convenient than the other systems. But um, that was novel in our community. The notion of signature, they create me with the notion of signature. Um, Cox hadn't, hadn't, hadn't seen that, that what he did could be turned around to produce signature. Mm -hmm. Whereas I pretty much came from signature, I, I saw signature before I saw key negotiation in okay. what I was doing. Um, so at any the other funny thing about it is it sort of suggests linear response because there were six of us and we worked for about three years and three of them they worked over a period of about six years. So uh, you see, it's, <laughs> so it's, it's really same, you know I mean same uh, manpower, right? <laughs> well, I mean you know people are fond of uh, joking that nine pregnant women uh, can't have a baby in one month, <laughs> um, but that I think is a misinterpretation, you know, because if you if you mean oh you want to go have sex with nine women and then get a baby in one month, it doesn't work. But if you go out and you know pick nine pregnant women on the street at random, no other condition than they're pregnant, one of them's very fairly likely to have a have a baby within the next month. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, <coughs> so the late s late seventies was sort of the the birth of um, yeah public key cryptography, something that wasn't people weren't aware that, that, that could exist before. Uh, but I still wonder, well, what what were you searching for? I mean, was this discovery sort of like? You you finally found something in math that could be useful to do something with it, and then you oh found no. out what to do, no, or were no you no actively way. searching for some kind of solution no. of that problem? Well, I want to come back to the late seventies in a moment, but I'll go okay. back to I'll go to to answer your question, which is that in nineteen sixty five, um, oh three there are three three elements of this I think, um, I had had the sense for a long time that um, privacy was in danger. And I saw us, as I saw it, sort of walking up a saddle curve that's getting steeper and steeper. And I thought technology could push us to the left or to the right, and that one way you would know, sort of lose freedom and privacy, and another way technology would act to enhance it. So since the, uh, since the 60s, I had been thinking about this sort of thing. Then in, ni in 1965, um, one of my friends told me mistakenly that NSA encrypted the phones within its own buildings. And that wasn't true then, and it mostly isn't true now. They just have a separate set of phone lines, and there's a you know, bunch of shielded conduit and so forth. But the thing that bothered me about that was, I've been thinking about it, and I couldn't see how it could do you any good, because I had a very anti-establishment viewpoint. And so I couldn't imagine having a central organization I couldn't imagine what's called the central facility that manufactures all the keys. I wouldn't imagine trusting it. And so I wanted a system in which every pair of people who pick up the phone have privacy guaranteed from everyone else. 
And I couldn't figure out how to do that and turned it over in my mind. And then in 19, late 1969, I arrived at the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at Stanford. And I think maybe when I was there, when I arrived, maybe John McCarthy wasn't around. And he was off in Marseille giving a paper on what we would now call Internet commerce. He envisioned people buying and selling from their home terminals. And he came back and he told me about this. And I began thinking about um, what you would do for a signature in a paperless office. So I, this percolated on for a while and followed summer after next, summer of 72. Larry Roberts, who was our funder, he was the head of the Information Processing Techniques Office at ARPA, uh, went to Howard Rosenblum, who was what would now be the Deputy Director for Information Assurance at NSA. He was probably called Deputy Director for ComSec then. And he asked him for help with security on the ARPANET. But they couldn't reach an agreement because Rosenblum wanted all the work to be secret and Roberts didn't want to use any of his money to fund secret work. And so Roberts came back and he went and, you know, he began when he saw his principal investigators. He told him what he was thinking about and this is one of the things he was thinking about. And he mentioned it to John McCarthy. And John McCarthy came back and talked to his, uh, talked to his staff. And I, several of us got interested in cryptography at that point, but I was the only one who stayed interested. And six months later... Uh, I was I was doing nothing else, and John McCarthy was thoroughly fed up because I had come to work on proof of correctness of programs, which I believed then and believe now is a vastly more important problem. I just it didn't mm. do as well by me. Okay, and so and the more embarrassing was that I was being supported by under the table money from NSA, who wasn't interested in my working on cryptography. So I left, and I, I took an indefinite leave of absence, and I went off driving around the country. I intended to travel around the world, but instead I made my key discovery, which was my wife, Mary Fisher. I met her in New Jersey, and we began traveling together. And I never got out of the U.S. again until several years later, but um, the following summer we were at IBM, at the only non-governmental cryptographic laboratory of any significance in the U.S., and the boss of that laboratory, Alan Conheim, for whom Horst Weistel was working at the time, uh, told me that he, you know, he couldn't tell me very much. They were under a secrecy order, but I should go look up his old friend Marty Hellman when I got back to Stanford. And uh, now he wishes he'd never said that because we became uh, <laughs> a big pain in, uh, in his life. But anyway, I got back to Stanford and looked up Marty Hellman, and each of us found the other one the best informed person willing to talk about the subject uh, he'd yet encountered. And it went deeper than that because uh, his, uh, his mother-in-law is, is a dog breeder and his wife is a dog fancier and my wife can recognize 300 breeds of dog at a glance. And altogether, we just all got along wonderfully. And the first, you know, I had a half an hour appointment with, uh, with him at uh, four and in the end we were all at his place at 11 uh, finishing up dinner and <laughs> get back home up to Berkeley till midnight. So. So, so Marty was working on the same problem? Marky was not working on, well we weren't yet either of us working on public key cryptography. We were working on trying to develop a theory of cryptography and Marty was an information theorist and he was working on, he started with Shannon's 1949 paper so the, this general idea of public-private keys wasn't born. No, yet. Okay. no, no. That that one. That's that was that was that was my end of it. I mean, that's Mar Marty Marty's work uh, until until I suggested that idea to him. He didn't begin 
working in that direction. His work had been information theoretic. And mine had been largely about sort of to trying to, well, I spent most of the first two years trying to figure why, what the criteria were and coming up with notions, things we now call chosen plain text uh, attacks and things mm -hmm. at that point. But what I was going to say about the um, late uh, 70s is you said, you know, the era of the birth of public cryptography. It may be more important in the end is the era of the birth of a public cryptographic community. And one of the contributions of public cryptography is to cr put in, in the ring a problem that was sufficiently difficult on the face of it that it attracted people to work on it. Designing crypto systems in a vacuum is a very nebulous problem. You have to know a great deal before it becomes a clear design problem like writing a sonnet or designing an airplane or something of that kind. Mm -hmm. And so the fact public key systems, it's, it's not easy to design a public key system that passes the laugh test, right? So that takes some mathematical work to get any sort of a candidate there. So I think that played a great role in attracting people and in building the community. And something that has happened in the last, you know, crystallized in the last year or so, reaches one of the goals that I'd had since then, which I had this vision, and I'll put it in a U.S.-centric fashion, of a unification of public and private cryptographic techniques. Just the way I recognize, you know, bank vaults are not a different technology from what you lock secret documents in. As a matter of fact, they're significantly better, reflecting the very real fact that people want money. They don't want secret documents. And I, all through this period, you know, they had the attitude, oh, protecting billion-dollar wire transfers, that's not very important. What we need to protect is, you know, is our, is our secret communications. And this past year, NSA has issued a suite of cryptographic algorithms, all of them public, that are certified for all levels of classified traffic. And the, the flagship, I mean the, the pinnacle of that, the, the most obvious one, is the quote advanced encryption standard, which in another th unthinkable development in the chauvinistic world of cryptography, the U.S. picked a national standard that was designed in Belgium. And so <laughs> Um, I feel uh, uh, very few things give me such a sense of accomplishment as uh, as as this this having come out of the blue that suddenly they accepted uh, that Europe really the notions. <laughs> well, and, 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 and the unified. Um, I mean, it's not that we did all of that. Um, a good deal of Sweet B originates with um, with public uh, with public groups, but um, the hash algorithms they designed themselves, although they started off from the same approach that Ron Rivest started with MD4. Um, the elliptic curve, um, the well, the digital signature standard, uh, they did, uh, as I say, as, as engineering around El Gamal's patent. Um, the, the elliptic curve key negotiation part, the, the better version of it, um, called MQV, uh, Menezes, Ku, and Van Stone, uh, was done in uh, done in Canada, um, and uh, so there's a certain certain international, not turn no, it's not not scope of the whole world, but uh, there's both a, some U.S. government contribution to this and some civilian contribution from from uh, North America, all of North America and Europe.
So I, uh, I have great hopes, in fact, that this will become as, as influential as DES was on world cryptography and uh, give us a lot, uh, lot better basis for building secure communication systems than the diversity of things we've had in the past. Mm-hmm. So, <coughs> well, you are currently working for, for Sun Microsystems as the chief security officer. Is it ma- mainly a consulting task or mm, giving out directions? mainly a marketing task. I go around <laughs> giving talks. <laughs> giving talks. <Yeah. laughs> um, no, the task is to... Um, is to have, is to develop vision in cryptography, in vision and security, to see thing, try and vision what's going to be needed. I mean, this is why I'm going around talking about the problem of web services, which interests us a great deal, and the problem of utility computing, which is a main focus of our of our new business model, and saying now this is going to bring us into a world uh, where where security looks entirely different. And as a matter of fact. It's going to bring us into a world where essentially every computation would be judged insecure if you judged it by today's standards, which roughly say, you know, an enterprise is doing a secure computation if it's doing it on its own computers and protecting it adequately. But I think we're moving into a world where no big computation is ever going to be done on any one organization's computers. I think what we now do by hand, going to visit eBay or Google or Amazon or Salesforce or something that does specialized computing for us, is going to get to be done just automatically. There are going to be thousands of little suppliers who do know how to do some computation, if one reason or other, can do some computation better than anybody else. Well, this has been Sun's tagline for a while. The network is the computer, so everything is... Yes, well, and it's a great... I- the, that no, I, I know no better marketing slogan because it gets truer every year. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I always uh, thought it. I think they're generally right, but probably not now. Mm. Um, well... Well, we should repeat that this this slogan was originally ev- invented to well describe the the Java solution. To oh no, no, it's a much earlier than that. Is and uh, Gordon Bell, one of the founders of DEC, tells me in fact that uh, the line's his. Uh, but it's been Sun's line since well before uh, I started. I think it's I think I think Sun, um, whether the directly guy from Bell or not, but I think that notion was around from the very beginning. Uh, if you're analyzing technically, I would have said this notion is at least perfectly justifiable after NFS, the network file system, uh, and RPC, remote procedure call. Right, yeah. Uh, Distributed computing was and, you there know, from and, the start. Right. right, and RPC. I mean, RPC conceptually, of course, is the same phenomenon as web services. It's merely that it takes a while to develop an expressive enough mechanism to get what you want out of this. and. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, this in, 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 in networking has always been the race between either the abstraction of calling other programs or just exchanging data in a certain format. I'm still well, not sure what's going to win in this. Uh, well, respect. I think maybe I mean it's just like both. I mean, it's thing. obviously desirable, right? And what are the things that went against it? Well, one is performance characteristics. I mean, you notice, you know, in the, in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, various people worked on packetized voice with very desultory results. And that's really just a matter of the fact that you're under-resourced. It's analogous to the, all the work was done on, you know, tried, the original attempt at time-sharing, right, was, you know, try to get one horse to pull two carts just because you'd arrange the harnesses right. And there just basically wasn't enough computing power to do it. It, it. it was an advance, but it wasn't the advance that was hoped for at that time. Mm-hmm. But 
in both cases, both the both in the chips and in the network now, you have vastly more uh, capacity, and so and some things are absolute. I mean, you know, human voice is never going to be much more than well, musically, I guess it could be several megabits, but the you know, it's never going to require a terabit bandwidth or something. Even even video is not going to require a terabit bandwidth. Right. I mean, certainly, a gigabit bandwidth will do for any of these things. So there's a solid threshold. Or if you look at it in computers, you know, it was a challenge to write an editor 40 years ago. You ate up a lot of the computing power you had to make a, say, an S-expression editor, which is something I did about 1966. Keep redisplaying the Lisp code. Um, just ate up the PDP-10. PDP-6 that time. Um, and, of course, that's, you know, that's absolutely trivial now. The only one of the bread-and-butter things that, that eats up a lot of time is giant compilations. If you have to recompile millions of lines of code, all right, you can eat up a pretty powerful processor for, for all afternoon or something. But um, the uh, even so, the the network is the computer notion. I think um, may have been involved foresight at the beginning, but by the time I joined Sun, it seems to me it was just simply outright true. And then with the Im- with many different improvements, of which Java was one, it has become steadily truer over time. Um, <coughs> so, well, let's let's stay with that with the topic of, of web services and, and, and the associated security. I mean, right now we are uh, entering a world where, where new buzzwords coming along with Web 2.0, but apparently uh, we are um, appro- approaching a phase where opening up internal interfaces to the network is just a normal thing to do. Amazon is doing it, Google is doing it, so uh, websites get interconnected and well, that's what we now understand as web services, so this programmatic use. What is the dimension of, of security problems you see there in that in that area? Well, I mean, the essential one is that, uh, you know, it's almost a miracle that when radio led you to send your secrets out over the air, Cryptography managed to recover pretty much the existing paradigm about how you could send a secret message via a courier and get it to somebody else and nobody else would know it. Um, It's going to take somebody younger and smarter than I am uh, to figure it out if there is some analogous discovery that can be made here. If I give you my data, you know, and ask you to process them, There are very, very narrow range set of cases. There are cases in which you can organize data in such a way that you can do the expensive part of the processing for me and you still can't figure out what I really wanted to know. Right? The m- most interesting ones are cryptographic coprocessors for smart cards and things like that. But um, in general, basically, uh, it requires some mechanism for managing trust uh, or ignoring trust. So, I mean, right now you have basically, if you're going to use Google as a research tool, you have no choice about telling it what you're interested in, and you're very much depending on its trustworthiness in not, say, data mining the queries, figuring out who's interested in what, and then selling that information as another Google product. Right. That uh, that uh, matter of fact, in many ways, that's not a very exciting. You know, thinking from an intelligence point of view or a commercial point of view, it's a very exciting thing to do. Um, and if you, in a circumstance where oh, I don't know, I think Pixar operates fairly this way at the moment, except it will percolate down from million-dollar contracts to ten-dollar contracts probably at some point. You know, you have a certain kind of movie data, and you want them rendered into 
an MPEG-4 or something like that. So you send them to Pixar, and Pixar thinks for a while and sends you back an MPEG-4 and a bill and so forth. Now, the security issue there is that you, you can't keep them from seeing the movie, right? I mean, if, then, if you can't trust them not to distribute the movie or not to, you know, whatever. Um, and though you can cook up lots of examples of this kind, I don't know which ones will come along first, but, you know, I mean, heat flow in, in engineering is a major thing. And people have um, finite element method heat flow models of engines and aircraft engines and computers and uh, car engines and things like that. So I can easily imagine somebody could develop some improvement over the current methods that's analogous to the fast Fourier transform. So you know, if you think, suppose Cooley and Tukey, instead of publishing the fast Fourier transform, had kept it as a trade secret and published an ad that says, you know, need to, need to process your signals faster, uh, come to Cooley Tukey Enterprises, uh, 3 Nassau Street, Princeton. You know, and by now, of course, New York would just be a small suburb of Princeton. All the signal processing in the world would be done in Princeton. <laughs> now, that one's clearly ridiculous, but it's probably not ridiculous for some things that don't have to be done in every little widget and um, are complex enough you know, that you can keep them as trade secrets for some period of time. Um, so I'm, I'm anticipating there might be a lot of this. And then if you look at it from a business point of view, you know, you're trying to design a, a new engine for a car and you have a choice. I mean, yes, you could run heat flow analyses yourself, but you know how to do it at a cost of you know, 5,000 euros each time you want to do it, and it takes an hour and a quarter, and that really, an engineer who's trying to design the rest of the car, the rest of the engine or something, to have to wait on each idea for an hour and a quarter to get back the heat flows to know if it's okay, you know, and somebody else will do it for you for 500 euros, and it takes, you know, a minute and a half, uh, you're really not going to stay in business if you don't make use of that service. Right. right? And so you get into something that's very much like bricks and mortar business where you have a contract and contract says, you know, you're a machine shop. I'm going to send you the prints. You will make me one prototype. You'll send me back the prototype and the prints. I will pay your bill and you won't go make a copy for my competitor. And I think that, you know, to my limited imagination, that's the best I can see as the mainstream mechanism of security in a web services world. So... um well, you, you said something interesting um, before that when you were like sort of approaching this, these algorithms or your findings in the in the seventies that you've been concerned about privacy, and uh, right now I see this concern come up as well because apart from commercial problems you might have in giving out your data, it's also that people are giving tons of private information into the network currently. They do it when they're using Google, they do it when they're publishing photos here and there. And and then you said uh, it's about managing trust. What is there, a, well, are, are we approaching now yet another phase where privacy gets lost or is, uh, is improving? Well, I think the, um, I think, in some sense, I think has privacy has no chance against improving communication and improving storage. In 1900, there were 2 billion people in the world and no database of 2 billion items. Uh, today, there are 6 billion people in the world and, you know, lots of people's laptops would hold all their names. 
In five years, lots of people, laptops would hold a short bio. In 10 years, just guessing about the exact times, the laptops would, you know, hold a detailed bio or something like that. So there is no such database at the moment, and such approximations as there are are, are not easy to get at. But the driving forces, you know, are against being able to being able to have the notion of privacy that we had in the past which may not necessarily you know it's an approximation to what you really want I mean uh, what um, what people generally are afraid of I think that they describe as privacy and I'm not sure that that's exactly the right term to use is that people know about them who have no con no connection with them no concern over them it's all a one-way thing right and so the what they want is control over the way information about them is used not so much to conceal the information mm -hmm. and so for example I mean I think it's David Brin wrote transparent society and he had this notion of great reciprocality right which I which I didn't think was very practical and some you know say so my doctor says to me you know take off your clothes and I say you know you first doc right and, you know, I mean, that's all very sexy idea, you know. And, but the fact is, it's not that I'm worried about anything I tell her as an individual. What bothers me about her activities um, is not that she sits there, sits there dressed while I sit there nude and talk about my disease or something like that. What bothers me is that then she hands it to somebody who types it in and sends it to an insurance company who doesn't know me and doesn't care about me and is only doesn't really care if I live or die they're basically into interested in optimizing the amount of money they get out of insuring people like me right. so is that you know is privacy the right term for that I don't know hmm. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm not sure as well I mean it's always uh, well you, you said it's more about how how can I control this do you see any way where probably cryptography or other um, technical means could solve this problem that like data can be passed and used without actually revealing its uh I think that very limited cases in which that's true um, I mean it's hard enough maybe concealing your own identity probably concealing your identity right for a certain category of things uh, queries to Google are not generally of in prop I would guess of enough value in themselves that it's the query you're trying to conceal, although it might be, right? But it's um, it's the identity of the person making the query. So I mean, if I were trying to you know search Google, if I would if I had access to the Google query stream and were trying to exploit it this way, um, I think what I would want to know, most obvious thing to want to know, is to look at the major corporations or our major competitors, and say, okay, now what is each one of these interested in? And from a strict, you know, if you read history of military intelligence, read something like the history of the technical, uh, Jones' history of his work in the Technical Intelligence Office um, in Britain during the Second World War, they would love to have had, you know, suppose for each laboratory in Germany, say, oh my gosh, they're, you know, they're looking for high temperature alloys for this, that, and the other, right? So that's this very straightforward sort of um, intelligence activity. And if you could conceal who you were, that would solve some of the problem, confidentiality problems associated with that. But other cases, you'd want to make queries that just plain reveal what you're interested in that might be things, you know, nobody 
ever thought about before. Um, and the best example I can think of, but I don't have it in full detail, a friend of mine was working on, um, I think it's the Polygraphia. It's one of the cryptographic manuscripts of the, of the Renaissance. And it had a strange phrase in it. Um, it has encrypted portions and so forth. He's working on decrypting this. And he comes across this either, and I don't remember if it's in a ciphertext or plain text, really strange phrase. And so he types it to Google. And sure enough, it turns out to another community, it's well known. It's in Latin. It's part of a discussion of educational issues in 16th century Poland. Right? So now all of a sudden he has you know, big insight into a piece of this manuscript that he's working on. And that, that's a kind of thing, you know, so if, I mean, that's, I think, not a hot topic either militarily or commercially, but the point is, you know, if you're looking and you saw this query and saw the response, you might, you know, and saw the context because there have been a bunch of other queries having to do with Renaissance things and this, that, and the other and where copies of this manuscript were and, you know, then suddenly you see this particularly insightful one, you would get the same leg up on making the translation that, that he had. So that's, um, I mean, I think that one's already very much with us. Um, and I expect that there will be a bunch of others that are, you know, not a sm I'm not smart enough that they're obvious to me yet, but in two or three or five years when somebody uh, begins offering these services, the uh, confidentiality concerns associated with using them will become, become obvious to everyone. So is this the, the, the end of privacy as we know it then? Is it just like we have to find ways how to deal with uh, no privacy at all? Is it just like everybody's going to have Well, at the very life? least, I think it's a rethinking, as I say, of what you mean by privacy and what you want out of it. I mean, privacy in the terms of like, usually I d in the last 30 years, I there were many, many, many things I did not uh, have to tell anybody. It right. didn't really make any sense. But right now, people, you can't really stop them from publishing every aspect of their, their private life, like what they like. Well, that's right. Now, like. often it impinges on you, right? I mean, um, Ted Nelson of Autodesk, I think, used to go around, you know, carrying a little camera, filming those. You know, if you did outright stop him, he'd film his conversation with you. Now, it's not clear whether that stuff will live or die, whether it'll ever get up and open the web, or whether, you know, I, for example, object, right? But um, that's one direction of it. Another is I was talking at PopTech a few years ago and, you know, said uh, it was, I was arguing against, I think it's the governor of New Hampshire and some other people, and said some things are perhaps too extreme. Uh, perhaps I wouldn't want to be associated with, you know, sort of slip of the tongue, too rash a thing to say. Well, this is all being webcast. This is, it, it feels like I'm not fairly small, you're meeting a few hundred people sitting in an old um, theater building in uh, Camden, Maine, and it doesn't feel terribly public, it feels like a nice intimate discussion, and in fact this is accessible to the entire world. So that's one kind, it's getting harder and harder in one sense um, to, uh, to have, have privacy. Um, but there are other senses, it seems to me, in which at least institutional privacy or put it, you know, a little, maybe let more abstractly, institutional power of, power of and right to confidentiality seems to me to be growing. That the whole notion that you can impose non-disclosure agreements on people and that organizations have, have quote, a right, you know, to keep, thing, keep things secret seems to me to be gaining ground. That people are asked to keep all sorts of secrets 
you know, I mean, is your salary something your employer has a legitimate right to ask you not to tell people? I mean, there are contracts that specify that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole notion, you know, oh, absolutely every, you know, if you could, there would be a crime or at least a civilly actionable thing if you take away the record of your own work. That seems to me, I, I would think these problems, to my mind, be much better, much more satisfactorily addressed from my point of view if we change this discussion to say, well, what are the rights of the individual about information? And I think your right to your memory is probably at least as valuable as your right to privacy. But we live in a world in which more and more of you moves outside of yourself, right? I mean, if you need glasses, your eyes are extended by something. If, you know, you need to wear clothes, your, eye, your, your body is vastly extended by your wardrobe. You need to transport yourself, you're extended by your car. You need to get information, you're extended by the Internet. But everything that's outside yourself is, on the face of it, regulatable. Um, and so, in effect, your memory, I mean, your memory is not just what's inside your head, which has one kind of virtue and other kinds of of lack of virtue, but it's, you know, what's in your, on your disk and what's in your library and so forth. And, um, and that's alienable from you. I mean, people say, oh, no, you have no right to your memory. and You can go to a movie and you can enjoy it, and then we withdraw it from circulation. You can never see it again. You can hear music that you like. We can withdraw it from circulation. You can never hear it again. Right? Now, it seems to me that if I were going to go after major, what I see as major social problems associated with individual you know the with the the rights of the individual that your right to your memory is you know very plausibly more important than your right to privacy mm-hmm. i mean another area is your right to imagination right i mean i think the anti the anti computer generated child pornography um rules Although understandable enough as a matter of evidential issues of the the police don't like to have to, you know, prove that it was a real person rather than a computer-generated image. And, you know, a lot of revulsion by a lot of people. My gosh, you know, you shouldn't like that stuff or something. But the critical point is that that's, that's, a, that's a very sharp camel's nose under a tent that says, you know, well, you can think, maybe, maybe you can think whatever you like until we learn how to read your mind. That might, that might take several years. On the other hand, you can't enhance your thinking by using mechanisms outside yourself without committing a crime. And um, so, you know, they wanted in some sense to do that um, in cryptography. 1980 or so, Bobby Ray Inman, who's head of NSA, put the National Council on Education, I think it is, um, up to having a committee that would consider the issue of whether NSA should have some sort of authority over cryptographic information in the same way that U.S. law, um, in principle, gives the uh, Department of Energy authority over nuclear weapons information. So you can't, you're not free to invent a nuclear weapon and publish it, even if you didn't know anything secret to start with. That's mm-hmm. a threat to society and somehow is, is illegal. Um, that's never been adequately tested in court. They were about to lose, and they dropped the case in a clever way and made it, everybody believe that they, you know, they left the impression that they would have won, uh, though I think the smart money was elsewhere at the time. Uh, and one of the things that's interesting to me is that that was roundly opposed at the time. And everybody, you know, declared opposition to this and it feared it would be defied if it were adopted and the, the committee wouldn't even say what they wanted and so forth. And then the D- Digital Millennium Copyright Act 
they got in comparable, not quite the same sort of provisions, but comparable saying, you know, oh, you can't, you can't do um, security research that endangers billing mechanisms. Um, we can sue you or prosecute you. And the community has largely rolled over. And people have, uh, have said, okay, uh, you know, they started suits and things instead of publishing their papers. Um, I'd like to get um, back to well the, the the history thing because you um, started in in the sixties well at at the MIT right yes and um, well today when we were at the the security conference uh, well I I did some uh, introdu introduction of the Chaos Computer Club in a in a separate talk and then you came uh, to me and uh, told me well you had a separate view on the uh, the way I defined um, hacking uh, in general and, 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 and being being a hacker. So, um, and, and I think you were right because you were... Well, my, my point was merely that I'm a primary witness. I was actually part of that scene. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, well, I just tried to describe something that I just uh, heard of. That's uh, the point I wanted to go to. I mean, you, 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 you said, well, I left out the, um, the point that, that hacking is generally considered to be programming, which is uh, true. No, no, I don't miss I didn't think I exactly said that. Um, do you want to spend the time to go back over this? Well, sure. Oh, that, uh, I said that when I arrived at MIT in 1961, the term hacking meant two things. One was not to be working. Um, and I, I remarked that it's the opposite of the Latin construction negotio, which is not to be at leisure. Um, but the other thing was to play a trick on, a trick of some kind. It need not be on somebody. So that, for example, somewhat later, a police car, probably stripped of all its heavy stuff, was put up on top of the main dome of MIT. Right. This was considered a great hack. I mean, people you know, sneaked around security and so forth. And when the sun came up, there's this car sitting up on the top. And everybody's thinking, how, how, how to get there? <laughs> right. Okay. So these two terms are, are exist for hack. Right. One of which means to be doing, you know, you find something to do other than studying physics because, you know, too hard to study for the exam night. Well, one of the big things that appeared, of course, in the 1950s that began to be computers around. And some people fell in love with them. I think it's Dijkstra who wrote, you know, that there's a great joy in writing a program and getting it to, to run correctly. Some people experience this joy so acutely that they do nothing else for several years. Um, and I think, so, the sense in which ha programming was hacking, I mean, it was, not, it was not that the word hacking is in any way restricted to programming. It was that many people did their hacking, that is, they're not working on what the syllabus said that was going to be examined on, in the form of particularly going to the TX0 and the PDP1, and this is all, you know, on the boundary, it's, it extends before I arrived and continues after, uh, or going to work on the, I think it's called an NX, over at the Model Railroad Club. They didn't have a real computer yet, but they had a relay device that scheduled trains. Right. And so um, hacking fell, fell very naturally, fell very naturally within the existing use of the MIT term hacking. And I always thought that the use of hacking to describe malicious computer activity was in some sense legitimate, since the word hacking at MIT also described doing less savory things often to people. Um, so I, I never found the dual use terribly, uh, never terribly distressing. Uh, yeah. Although, 
well sometimes people are just like only focusing on the negative part of, of the world in a way oh yeah I, uh, the negative part of the word I, I omitted to say that uh, it was a great term of praise in the 60s at the artificial intelligence lab in particular at MIT the phrase it was a great hack I mean it meant a good piece of work of any kind but the usual good pieces of work were you know construction of hard construction of software it was some hardware built and so forth but but to, to do something you know clever something worthwhile something imaginative so was you know was understatedly hey, that was a good hack right um well i wanted to get back to uh cryptography just uh once more um I mean, it's it's obviously a very, very, very complicated topic. Uh, from everything that I know that I could possibly deal with and with my computer, cryptography is probably one of the most complicated stuff because it involves so much mathematics to really understand what's going on. Um, if you uh, well, what, what would you what suppose it one does it involve more than graphics? I don't know. Um, I'm sig I'm sig not signal sure. processing. I mean, there's uh, no. Um, Well, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of things are mathematically comp. Oh, and the design of computers. I mean, you think about the design of computers and doing the, um, you know, the uh, sort of electrical analyses of signals leaking around on chips and things like that. Okay, so uh, what do you say? You say it's not as complicated. I don't as know. I I, think. Well, I don't know. I didn't <laughs> think about it before. It's a, um, it's it's to me it's an interesting field. It's, I think, a rather limited field. Right, so there are many fields that sort of grow beyond any definition. I mean, artificial intelligence, for example, there's almost nothing, you know, anywhere in the cognitive sciences or something. That that whole area is just has unbound, has no limits. On the other hand, um, cryptography. Well, there are some classic problems, and I think there are systems available now that solve those problems adequately. And in engineering is about you know building what's adequate. Not 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 building what's usually about building what's optimal. There are times you try to optimize things, but only if you have an adequate solution, then you use it, and that's why you find so many things that are cobbled together. I mean, Sun Microsystems is built on a welding job. They welded together Unix, the S bus, and the Ethernet, right? And and had had something then that you know evolves over time, but that basic three-part marriage made um, the system. It goes together. So um, it seems to me at the moment for most, for a vast range of things, we have an adequate set of solutions. We have the problem that we don't know, we don't have the kind of evidence we would really like about whether they're secure. We have, in fact, quite a number of years of experience with certain very broad cryptanalytic techniques, and the advanced encryption standard was designed explicitly to resist those techniques, and I'm very optimistic about that because, you know, linear cryptanalysis, well, linearization is the major mechanism of applied mathematics. Have something calculus is about approximating curved things by flatlands. All right. So here we're using the basic mechanism, you know, of applied mathematics to attack cryptographic systems. And if you can design one and show that it's going to fail against all of the, you know, attacks of this kind that you know, that that's that's fairly convincing evidence that it uh That it, of its quality. So, so you say that um, well, 30 years ago there was no public-private key cryptography. Now we have it for 30 years. Is it still healthy? Is oh, it I think still so. the way to go? 
Well, I don't know. I don't know any better um, the variety of solutions problems for which I don't know any better solution, and a variety of problems to broaden this just slightly. A variety of problems for which I cannot imagine a non-cryptographic solution. That is to say that the way you describe the problem says in effect there has to be something you know something that's secret and something that's public and some relationship between the two um, and any solution you come up with it might be entirely different in the way it works but if you look back at it you say well it has the same characteristics so probably one would want to call this cryptography so well I'm, I think the most popular implementation of this is uh, the PGP system or, uh, well, how do you measure popular? I mean, I think I think the most widely deployed cryptographic mechanism of all time is SSL. Right. That that's would have been the second. And but G that's something. G the GSM A five is is probably competitive with that. That's got you know made. I mean, you may you could now you go on. You could criticize at one time. I mean, it was a great surprise to me. I picked somebody up for breakfast at um, communication security establishment in Ottawa. The the Canadian. Signals Intelligence Organization, and he was five minutes late or something, right? uh, and uh, and is driving to breakfast. He said he apologized. He got caught in a hallway conversation about the um, Zenith video encryption, and he told me I hadn't thought of it that that was at that time the most widely deployed cryptographic mechanism in the world. It wasn't very good. Right, so you might not want to count myself. Oh, that's low-grade encryption or something like that. But there were millions of these things in TV sets of one kind or another. Right, mm -hmm. so that makes. Right? Uh, but today, I mean, I think now that you have software implementations in critical places, right? Some there's sort of three candidates. Something in a browser is certainly a good candidate. Um, something in an email client might be, but I don't think it's competitive yet in number of things deployed. Something in a smart card. Something in a cell phone. Maybe some other cases I haven't thought of, but I think these way outrun, and this was Ross Anderson's prediction, you know, I think it's Anderson, gave a paper in, uh, at a conference in 1996 in Australia, in, in Brisbane, and said, you know, these civilian applications are just going to way outrun the military applications. I mean, they think they have a lot of something when they have a few hundred thousand or sometimes a few, you know, a few million of them. And here, you know, day after deployment or something, you get just millions of these browsers in a year or something after you deploy them, you get millions of cell phones, etc. So uh, that's what I, that's one way of measuring popularity. I know of two others, incidentally. I mean, some, they don't always give the same result. One's how many bits it carries. And one is um, how much it costs. Mm -hmm. so. Well, the the point I was um, aiming for was not well. I know well SSL is of course wi more widely used, but it's you are uh, already pushed into it, which is a good thing. I mean, if you do that's probably the reason it's <laughs> widely used. It just happens without your having yeah, to it ask it. It's it's just there, and you do not really have to make the decision. Usually, if you got like something like online banking, where you just do it uh, over a secure connection, it's not just not being offered the way. But everywhere where I have the decision um, to do it, either in a encrypted way or uh, the other way, and that's where email comes in. Um, well, what what are you using? How many of your emails you send are actually encrypted? Well, it's now essentially none for quite a number of years. And I should get back to encrypting my emails now that I have a laptop. Uh, what my judgment for many years, I, I had I did experiments with this when I was last at BNR, and at that time I had a PC 
that I connected uh, probably by RS-3232 or something to a Sun workstation. And so I sent certain email. I ran all of that stuff on the PC, and ciphertext, nothing but ciphertext ever left the PC. And that seemed to me a reasonable arrangement. I got the Sun, and I judged basically I couldn't defend my workstation against the rest of the network. And I stopped, you know, probably mistakenly stopped bothering to use uh, email encryption because, after all, it, it has been in every system I've encountered uh, quite a bother. And it probably has a certain amount of essential bother about it since you have to identify, you know, have to find a key to encrypt something in to send to somebody. Right. So I find I very much like secure phones whose problem is that there are too few secure phones and too many types of secure phones, but at least they do something that's nice and logically simple, and that means you can have a conversation with somebody and ramble on about ideas and so forth and not be too worried about somebody uh, about, about something on something that you didn't email you can you you prepare much more you have lots of people don't but i happen to write email generally quite carefully i very rarely send one i've made one mistake in the last five or ten years of sending an embarrassing email to the wrong person I mean, something about <laughs> you know now now we don't want him talking at that conference but i had uh, two regions in effect of my mail folder open and automatically sent it to the one that I was looking at to see what I wanted to say about what this guy was going to, to say. Um, I managed to wiggle out of that. The, the person I had intended to send it to was just, I don't remember now the details, but I managed to say something uh, uh, <laughs> disingenuous <laughs> and <laughs> soothe this person's feelings. But, uh, but so uh, the, um, I think you're getting to the point that ease of use is the really critical um, thing about getting this to be widely deployed. And at present, ease of use does not characterize most systems. Right. That's that's really a point. Because most of the people I know, including myself, uh, most of the emails are not, not encrypted. But it also starts at the system. Right? Well, whereas the use of uh, encrypted transport, if the email gets encrypted on the other side as well, where it's maybe in the open or uh, uh, my system has to be completely encrypted. Well, that's a very good example of asking yourself what you want out of your security mechanisms. Right? So um, if, for example, you are worried, there are obviously all sorts of places that could be outright snooping mechanisms on the email path that would be completely defeated by your locally encrypting things. Right? Your ISP can look at all of it. Um, you know, you're, if you're coming out from behind in co corporate or enterprise and industry, um, university environment, they could be looking at it. it do, you don't, you don't, the cryptography has the nice advantage that if you do that, and if they're not in a position to tell you not to do that, then you don't have to worry about what the local law is, what the local practices are, how good the hiring practices are, whether they're hiring somebody to be their mail, per, you know, their system administrator who might be a fink and might like to look at stuff and get rid of all of those concerns. You can sort of bottle things up. Um, but on the other hand, there are a whole, if you look at this path, and say, let's take something that was at one time a U.S. national objective, which was to uh, counter uh, perceived Soviet eavesdropping on long-distance communications. And so there were rules about things like traffic going from ground station to ground station of satellites being encrypted. So that was, in one sense, enhanced my security. 
against one particular set of opponents. In another sense, of course, that didn't affect any of nobody, none of the people I am aware of target might target me individually is putting a satellite up in space listening to that level of the transmission. They're much more likely to be in the ISP or in the server room down the hall or something of that kind. Now, if you demand, if you say, oh, it's not worth encrypting email unless you also encrypt all the files on your laptop, you can probably identify a category of email for which that's true. But you could also perhaps find, well, if it were easy to encrypt the email, right? We set up something, the most obvious thing, I think, is only inflexible at the moment that you have a new pen pal, right? So whenever you write to somebody you know, the stuff is encrypted. But when it comes to that person, it's always decrypted automatically and stored in plain text just as though it had been unencrypted email so that there isn't any further trouble about it. Right. right. So that'll protect you against a broad category of things without a lot of difficulty, except at the moment, which is a very important moment, when you want to send a message to somebody you didn't know before. Right. And then it complicates, then the protocol gets complicated completely. Or when somebody wants to rekey for one reason or another. Yeah. And it's also the, the, the question, again, managing trust. So who who can you trust? Who And who, who can you trust that, it, uh, which system can you trust that it gives out the proper key for the one I want to send a message to? Uh, well, GPG and, 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 and the S-MIME, the two major uh, ways of, of dealing with encrypted email, have a, s a separate approach here. One uh, is more like on an individual basis. Uh, I give out my fingerprint, whatever, my, my public key personally, or I well put it on the server and point to it and have some kind of means of verification. And the other th thing is, is based on a, on a hierarchy uh, trust system. Which one yeah. would you prefer? I mean, well, wh which one is the one you're using? So I think there are actually more unity between them than that. And my view, which in, in, is not widely shared, and um, is that a hierarchical system is one kind of security policy that could be expressed in a web of trust system. So a web of trust system says, you know, you trust some people more than others. Typically, you trust yourself most, right? But you have to trust other people, and you have some set of guidelines. Well, if that set of guidelines is you trust a certain set of hierarchies, right, then what you need to do is pass, that's a security policy, and in fact, you've got to take those security policies and bottle them up and pass them around as formal first-class entities in the system. Right. So um, you, and all of this tends to dissolve into something that has a moderate complexity to it, right? I mean, you say, Absolutely. I, have, I have some set of documents. They represent my work with this startup or something like that. And therefore, they, that set of documents, say, have a classification, mark them some way or other, then whenever they're sent, they need somehow to find an appropriate key. Right? So they need to, well, that's a case where you would have a security policy that's associated with those documents that says, oh, well, these documents fall within, let's say, the, MI, the IBM key hierarchy. Right? So when you're sending these documents, you look to things starting with this IBM signature and down under that domain as appropriate. When you're sending other sorts of documents, you don't. I mean, uh, you know, the IBM hierarchy or the, the national hierarchy or something have nothing to do with your love letters. You have a different structure for, for that. 
So we need systems that make it easy to, to manage this kind of, of trust levels that are applied to my environment. I think so, and in my experiences it has proved very difficult, even in narrower cases that one than ones that include your, your love letters, just keeping a machine configured so that the security assignments are plausible. Um, you know, requires active active attention when it seems it shouldn't. It does, you know, things are constantly changing the protection profiles of uh, yeah. of files uh, in ways that are reasonable for some purpose and not reasonable for others. Yeah, and more security also makes it uh, very likely that you know, you happen to like lose everything because you just get lost of one password, one individual key that you have somewhere, and when you lose it, you lose everything. Well, I'm, I differ from almost all chief security officers in believing you should write down passwords. I think that my, you know, my filing cabinets and my wallet are both more secure than any of the computer systems I use. <laughs> so I think it's much better to have good passwords, right? And... Um, that by which I mean sort of not guessable, not crackable, not findable, make them difficult in that direction, and um, to have them written down so you don't forget them. I have this vision, I, you know, I see a workstation sitting there on the internet, and it has a root password, and the root password, well, maybe that's not right, it might, it might not allow somebody to, but imagine it does allow people to log in remotely as root, has a good root password, and that root password is in, in, in a sealed envelope taped to the front of the machine. So if somebody locally needs to do something, right, they can open the envelope and do it. But that envelope is never going to be penetratable by probes coming in and from across the network. Whereas if instead you do what was, you know, do a lot of people do a lot of in organizations, which you have some convention. All the lab machines have the same root password so everybody can remember it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because from time to time people need to reboot the machine or, you know, install new software or something like that. Then you put yourself into a uh, very dangerous position where some pro malicious process coming in over the, over the Internet can uh, get at the password. And that's far worse than if you wrote, had they all had good passwords, you wrote them down, had them in a little, you know, even on a file card in an open envelope on the front. So the protocol is you pull it up and look at it and type it in and push it back down. And that's it's accessible to anyone locally, but not to anyone uh, remotely. Mm -hmm. getting, getting back to cryptography one more time, <laughs> is there anything... Well, what's left? I mean, wh where's the current research going and, and where are people heading for? Well, what the are the missing points? So those seem to me actually be two different questions. Okay. Uh, at least two different questions. One of the interesting things about cryptography is that in it doesn't feel the way I do in the sense that, you know, I think, okay, so we have a plausible set of cryptographic algorithms. I think it may well be secure for the entire 21st century. This is, as I would put it, the best cooked part of information security. Okay. So the question is, why is cryptography such a healthy field? And by what I mean by that, I don't know, um, I'm not sure about to go to Eurocrypt in, in St. Petersburg, and I expect I'll probably find there what I find at Crypto in uh, Santa Barbara and at other Eurocrypts, which is a field that's populated by people from old farts like me down to approaching having some of their grandchildren, right? Certainly lots of people's children are working in the field, and lots of people who are brand new graduate students, people in their early 20s, are coming, have come into the field. Um, what is it that is being worked on? Well, the major open problem is proof of security. It's not clear um, whether um, 
you know, that's, that's a problem that transcends cryptography. It's largely a problem in complexity theory. Very, most of the results are in artificial models that don't really apply to, um, to realistic cryptographic situations. So I'm, I'm mildly skeptical that that problem is going to be, I think it'll take some great ideas for that problem to be solved. Uh, and no particular reason to believe they're going to occur next year or the year after that or the year after that. There is, um, there's certainly a certain amount of work still on finding kind of new phenomenon in the sense that uh, um, Shafi Goldwasser and Silvio Macaulay worked for years on oblivious transfer and, sign and contracts, simultaneous contract signing so nobody can, you know, pull out at just the right moment uh, leaving themselves with a valid contract but not allowing the other party to have one. Mm -hmm. So I don't even keep track of all the possible ways of doing that. There is a continuing search um, for more efficient public key crypto systems. The elliptic curve systems bring the, bring the key size costs down to about twice the size of conventional keys, which isn't bad and may be much closer than that, you begin to run into some other kinds of things that are fundamental in the fact that you have new capabilities. But um, the key management systems are still slower than you'd like them to be. We've had a great deal of work, you know, had basically had to put a lot of SSL into hardware for a big server, for a big .com, to be able to uh, set up secure connections for as many queries as it would like. And that means, you know, it has a consequence, for example, you look at Amazon, well, for that matter, Google, right? I mean, you reasonably say, okay, we have to trust Google. Well, why do we have to trust everybody who's eavesdropping on the wires? Why don't we have HTTPS for, for all of our Google connections? The answer is, can't, you know, doesn't do them any business good to afford it, and it would be rather expensive, right? People have VPNs and so forth do that kind of thing, but... Um, public service companies, public companies like Amazon and Google don't secure anything except financial transactions. Mm -hmm. So if we can lower the cost, and that happens in the present methods, a lot of the cost is in the exponentiators. And so if we could lower the cost of the public key methods significantly. So uh, that we that have finally something like everything yeah, be right, encrypted. Exactly. Yeah, right, mm exactly. -hmm. And another very, um, I don't know how likely, but I think very worthwhile direction of development is this concern about um, is this concern about quantum computing? And if quantum computing matures the way the physicists expect it to, then you know my view is it'll transform society. Who cares what happens to cryptography? But the fact is, you know, lots of people will care. Cryptography is a very useful tool, and the impact of quantum quantum computing, as it's seen at the moment is that it will ruin the current public key methods because they're all based on cycle lengths and it's very good at finding cycle lengths. There are other lattice reduction based methods and so forth that it doesn't ruin. So developing new approaches that are more resistant to um, to the to promises of quantum computing, computing right, are, are, are worthwhile. It doesn't do anything like the same amount of damage to conventional systems incidentally. It sort of halves the effective key length. Mm -hmm. So um, AES, so AES with a 256-bit key length, you cut it down to 128. That's still well above where I can see anybody, you know, producing a any sort of linear process that can do two to the 128th 
computations, even to the to the one twentieth. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so you consider the current standards to be pretty safe for the new? Well, I think I mean the quantum c quantum computing is the only thing I see that I believe is likely to produce a great upset. But there's never there's no question that we have no way of knowing. You know, we have in some this this is engineering in a sense, not mathematics. We have. 30 or more years of experience. Well, in some sense, we have 500 years, but we have 30 years of acute experience with systems that are based on table lookups and indexing. Right? You have an arithmetic operation, you have table lookups. So that's the question of how to put those together dexterously so that you end with something that runs fast and, and produces secure output. Um, is that as satisfying to us as a formal mathematical proof? No, not, not vaguely. On the other hand, um, do we have, you know, most things, I mean, this is, this is simple in my view as engineering things go. You don't really think about a formal mathematical proof that a bridge isn't going to collapse or, you know, that your heart isn't going to fail or that your car is going to, all of these things, most of engineering, let alone political science or, you know, art or any of the rest of these things, most of engineering is firmly beyond having formal proofs of anything. What you have is, you know, you, you prove much, much narrower things within frameworks of experience. Okay. Um, so I think we're way beyond our original aim of uh, talking half an hour. <laughs> well, you can just, you know, cut every third of a second out of it or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I could, but I won't. Uh, there has been a very uh, interesting insight into your world. Um, so I can only say thank you for the talk. And um, yeah, this was uh, another episode of uh, Chaos Radio. It was uh, a bit longer and, and much more technical than I expected it to be. <laughs> but oh, this is uh, very much appreciated because this is uh, also radio for hackers. And uh, if you're interested in cryptography, I think you found uh, new stuff to, to think about right now. So uh, thank you very much again, Whitfield. Um. And um, I say... Um, let me uh, ask a question. I assume yes. Chaos Radio is all under terms of copyleft. Anyone who can hear it is entitled to copy it and redistribute it under uh, same terms. Absolutely. You can just take it and, 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 and put it out wherever you want. Okay. So it's a, uh, under a Creative Commons license, of course. And we're also using Creative Commons license music only here. Ah, good. So as free as it can get. So, um, goodbye to uh, you listeners. If you have any remarks on this uh, episode, as usual, you can send us email at chaosradio um, at ccc.de. And I hope you will do that if you've got uh, new ideas or uh, any kinds of comments on this. So, this was uh, Tim Pritlove and we feel Diffie and we say goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.